Howdy, y'all. Before we start this episode of Fiddle and Pipe, we just want to come at you with some announcements. First off, if you are on social media and active in that, I know I am, there is a great fundraising concert opportunity going on. If you do not know Frozen Fiddle Rose, that is their Instagram handle, there is a online fundraising concert for the events going on in Palestine right now. It will be on Saturday, June 12th. Time is to be determined at this at this moment. But if you would like to take part in the concert, please DM Frozen Fiddle Rose. Or if you just want to watch and donate, mark your calendars for June 12th. And there will be more information on this concert in the weeks, days coming ahead of that date. So and I believe that Catherine is actually performing in it, and she just told yes. me about it, so I'm going to perform in it. Should be rad. It's going to a good cause. So visit Frozen Fiddle Rose, DM her if you're interested in performing or want to donate or join in on the concert and just watch it. It'll be on June 12th. <laughs> yeah, I think you can follow her if you're interested in just getting more information about it, too. Yeah, she has a really cool page. And then the second thing is if you are in the Denver area or planning on being in the Denver area on Friday, May 28th, my group Nebula Ensemble will be performing at Rosedale Park in Denver. It is a free concert and it's free. You know, it's free. <laughs> <laughs> and what we're doing is we are performing at a park and we're doing a sound walk. So basically what you'll be doing is we'll be kind of scattered around the park. We're playing pieces that are basically written for this so it's a very it's going to be a very interesting and kind of cool experience if you are available that friday night and hopefully the weather will be really nice and it's not hailing in denver because that's usually a thing here <laughs> we will be performing at 7 p.m at rosedale park feel free to go on our website at www.nebulaensemble.org events we'll put these links we'll put frozen fiddle roses instagram handle in our description We'll also put the link to the Nebula Ensemble concert on the episode description as well if you just want to click and go right there to those pages. But yeah, those are the events. Do you have anything going on? <laughs> Unfortunately not. Thanks, COVID. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but otherwise we hope you enjoy this latest episode of Fill and Pipe. Yep, thanks. <laughs> Hi, I'm Brittany Ross, and I play the fiddle. I'm Catherine Blencham, and I play the pipe. And together, we are Fiddle and Pipe. Two classical musicians who are reading and discussing topics beyond the staff. So grab a book, take a seat, and tune in. Hey, Catherine. What's up? <laughs> you do a little head nod. <laughs> it's been a very long day. Oh been awake since four Unintentionally. Ugh, that's way too early. So, we were now getting into chapter five. Will. The power of will. I'm gonna be honest, I read this like two or three weeks ago, so I'm like literally just going off my notes. <laughs> I read this chapter twice. So you're gonna be the organized one in this. I hope so. <laughs> Don't count on that. Okay, so literally my very first note, we're off to a good start, we're off and running. I put degrees of distraction, which is his first big point and I put some fancy charts <laughs> because he, he doesn't 
<laughs> he does have a lot of charts. If you look at page 54, it's 54 in my book. He's talking about how if we put 100% concentration into music, it's going to equal 100% music. Yeah. But he's like, if you have 100% concentration, you're splitting that between 50% audition anxiety and 50% music. That's going to be 50-50. And he's basically, you know, it just keeps getting more and more separated. So if you just keep adding these things that your brain is thinking about, you're not able to put 100% of your effort into, in this case, your music. That is my brain 24-7. I like yeah, my brain all the time, too, because I'm never just thinking about, I guess I shouldn't have been talking when I got up, but I'm never, <laughs> I'm never just thinking about one thing. Yeah. Ever. No, same here. He made a really good point because this is something that I struggle with a lot, personally. I, and I just noticed this a lot more, I would say within this past year, maybe, I don't know if it's the pandemic or maybe I've always been thinking about this, but I think I just came to realization recently within the last few months I think so much when I'm playing and I just want to like let go of this you know what I mean and I feel like because I've just been thinking so critically of myself my kind of shows in my playing and I feel really tense when I play and I just remember it was something that when I sent a recording to my teacher a piece that I was doing it for a competition she put down like it just sounds like you are working so hard and doing way too much kind of feel light when you're playing and that's, I yeah. think when she told me that, I was like, yeah, I'm thinking, overthinking everything. And I also had outside thoughts getting into my head. That was screaming at me when I read this. Well, for me, with the, it's definitely gotten worse during COVID. Like I was talking to my best friend. I was just like, oh, you know, suddenly it just seems like sometimes I just have sudden really bad anxiety. Mm-hmm. And I don't, there's no logical reason for it. And it's not when I'm playing, it's just like, I'll be doing the dishes and then suddenly I'm like, oh my God, I'm so anxious. Mm-hmm. It's not as bad as like an anxiety attack, but it's just, and I was talking to her about this and she's like, no, that's been happening to me too. And I think it's just kind of a universal thing with COVID. We're just not, we've been in distress for so long that we're not really able to like focus on what we're doing. Exactly. Yeah. I feel that. I think. I think a lot of other people can relate to that too. Barry Green starts talking about why do we choose music? So it's about, I think, in our first episode, our second episode, we talked about getting back to, like how children have like really spongy brains. Yeah, that was our first episode. (laughs) Yeah, I'm like editing all these right now, so they're starting to get mixed up in my (laughs) head. Uh, but, (laughs) But I was talking about how like children's neural connections basically allow them to learn more efficiently Uh, because they can form connections and adults really can't that well so he's like you know get back to your love of music so why did you why did you start music and what were your goals with it and it brought us to an exercise which was reasons for choosing music how does music affect you and do you enjoy sharing it with others and if so how did you do this or did you self-reflect on this um let's see or do you like know why off the top of your head why you chose music I think I chose it because, like, for me personally, when I started hearing professional musicians play, it just put me in awe. And I go back to, like, when I first saw the Atlanta Symphony play. Before I went to college, orchestra wasn't really that great at my school. I know that you went to a better high school than where I went. My high school program, the orchestra was... It went from like two groups to one within a year. There were some really good players in there, 
but I think it was the direction that wasn't really that great that kind of led the orchestra to be where it was. I don't know. I just didn't think orchestra was that great when I was in high school. I didn't think about that when I got into college either. I literally joined the music program because I was like, I want to play more than one concert a semester. (laughs) And that's the truth because I really didn't know what I was getting myself into. And I knew that I was good at music. I wasn't that great, but I knew from the amount that I practiced in high school, I enjoyed it. And I think it was finally when I listened to my teacher play and watching a professional orchestra and, you know, learning new music and techniques within my own playing from, you know, my education, that really made me, like, pursue music. I like not listening to every single piece that is out there because whenever I listen to a new piece, even if it's been written, like, the early 1700s, it's like I'm in Disney World again or something for the first time. It's amazing. (laughs) I just feel inspired and I want to create something like that, just like what these people are doing. Does that make sense a little bit? Yeah. Yeah, I guess, I think it was when I finally heard music in action and seeing people in action doing what they love, that really inspired me to kind of continue on and okay, this is something I really want to do. And exposing myself to other kinds of music out there really kind of, I guess, influenced that as well. Yeah, I get that. I started playing violin in sixth grade because around here at the middle schools, that's kind of when you get to choose if you want to do band or orchestra. I'm the oldest of three, so my parents were like, okay, you know, this kid, this kid's a guinea pig. Like, we want her to be good at everything. So they were like, okay, you can either do a sport or an instrument. And I have exercise-induced asthma, so I always loved running, but competitive sports weren't really a practical thing for me to do. And at the time, I definitely exercised less, so my asthma was a little bit not as manageable as it is today. So I was like, okay, well, I'm definitely not doing a sport, so I guess I'm gonna do music. And I did chorus in elementary school, but my best friend at the time, my elementary school best friend was gonna play violin, And then a girl in my neighborhood already played violin. So I was like, why not? Yeah, I was like, I knew people who were going to play this instrument. So I was like, oh, friends. So (laughs) I literally just did it because peer pressure. (laughs) That's literally why I picked up the violin. Like halfway through seventh grade, I was like, you know what? If I'm going to play this, I'm going to be good at it. So then I got lessons and I joined the like, after-school chamber orchestra thing that they had. That's cool. That my middle school had. They didn't even have anything like that when I was in high school. <laughs> it was very unbalanced. So it was, it was like, all the kids in uh, band and orchestra that just wanted to play more music, basically, and, like, harder music. That's kind of cool, though, because, like, that's what I struggled with. I think that re- what really mm-hmm. put my motivation down was not playing pieces that challenged me. That's yeah. why I was like, okay, I have to do this honor band program, because, like, if I do, if I make it to Allstate, if I make it to District Honor Band, if I make it to this Honor Band clinic, I'll be playing music that I really want to play with other people that want to play music. Because, like, I didn't have that as much in my own program, and maybe it's just because, like, I went to a di- completely different district than you, <laughs> and it's not, we weren't the most, we weren't, like, the poorest school, but we didn't have, like, as much funding as what you guys were able to have. Yeah. I mean, East Cobb is ridiculous. Yeah, it is. I think when I was a freshman in high school was kind of when I was just like, yeah, I can see doing this mm. as a career. That's pretty early. <laughs> yeah, but you know, then the the flip side of that was like, oh, and well, now I need to work my ass off. <laughs> it's true. Very true. 
In this exercise, Barry Green talks about... He has such a pleasant name. (laughs) (laughs) It just sounds so relaxing. Like, Barry Green. So he talks about... (laughs) He talks about narrowing in on specific goals when you're practicing, which I think is a great point because... And again, you can do this in every aspect of life. Everything becomes like a hot mess when you just look at the big picture. Mm Mm-hmm. So if you're taking yard work, for example, because I'm looking at my yard right now, you're like, okay, I want my yard to be, you know, 10 out of 10. But what do you need to do to do that? Okay, you have to, at the bare minimum, you got to mow and you need to edge, trim any bushes that you have. You got to maintain the plants you have. And if you want to go beyond that point, you're like, okay, well, I can add new plants. I can re-landscape. I can do all these things. And it becomes very overwhelming very quickly, especially like when Dave and I moved into this house, it was owned by a single woman with two little kids. So nothing was maintained well. So we had to like start from scratch. So if you're looking at the yard, it just seems very daunting. It's the same with practicing. If you have this piece in front of you Mm -hmm. and you're like, okay, I gotta learn this piece. Okay, well, what are my baby steps to get there? What do I need to do? Mm-hmm. I thought that was really good because it's something I think that we think about and realize a lot, but not something that's ever really put into words in exchange between teacher and student. And I think like what I've changed and what I related to that was I started this last summer when I started kind of getting into practicing more. I started feeling overwhelmed because I had some small little projects that I was doing. And so I created this goal sheet template, <laughs> but it really worked out. I wrote max three goals. But sometimes I didn't have three goals. Like I maybe just had one goal. It would be for each day I practiced. And most of the time it'd be leading up my overall product of like learning a piece or uh, Mm -hmm. practicing some excerpts for something. And I think ever since I started doing that last summer, it's helped me keep myself on track with what I'm doing. I would write out my goals like before my practice session or maybe the day before. When I do it at the end of my practice sessions, I have clear ideas of what I want to get done and continue on. But ever since I started writing these goals out, it's been keeping me in check. What my overall goal is. He talks about using the PEL, the PEL triangle, throwback to performance and achievement, experience and learning to make the specific goals. So basically don't have abstract goals. Be like, I want to play good. Be like, okay, well, what do you want to do? What do you want to learn? I want to learn the E-Bear Flute Concerto. Something like that. I want to learn the Sibelius Violin Concerto and I want to be able to, you know, really hit those runs and play with the same fiery passion I hear like Han does. There you go. That's a little bit more narrower than what I just said. I'm very broad. I just always think about Hilary Hahn and I'm like, huh. She is a gem. I love her. In this toilet of a world. That's my goal for this podcast is to interview Hilary Hahn. (laughs) Hilary Hahn, if you're listening, hello. Barry Green talks about performance goals in music, uh, with performance goal one being using visual cues. Sheet music represents a small part of music. Most of the music is like phrasing and musicality. So it's about familiarizing yourself with all the markings on the page, like notes, rhythms, dynamics, accents, bowings, fingerings, etc. to quote, see beyond the page. But he also talks about visualizing other things. What I really liked was when he was talking about imagining people like in powdered wigs and stuff like that. And that kind of got me thinking when I used to learn Bach sonatas in undergrad. I remember like I finally appreciated Bach probably my grad school audition days when I was 
Really? Yeah, because at first, like, when I first played box music, and it's, this was just something that we always did in the flute studio, we always at least had to play, like, a box sonata, especially for, like, recitals. And I was just like, okay. And I remember, like, learning his sonatas, and I just thought they were really noty. I didn't really understand it as well. I didn't really, like, look into it. And then when I was doing mm-hmm. grad auditions, I remember, like, Christina was sitting there, and she's like, I want you to imagine yourself being in a dimly lit room with candles keeping the heat and the light on. And I want you to pretend that you are standing there with your flute playing the sonata and your audience is hearing this for the very first time. And everyone's dressed up in this 18th century, like, setup. Victorian garb. Yeah. When you play these appoggiaturas, I really want you to, like, dig into them so they can be like, (gasps) like, something like that. (laughs) And I just remember being like, okay. And I... I don't know what happened, but just visualizing that and seeing that imagery in my head really got me thinking, okay, I can play Bach. (laughs) And the notes came out actually a lot better. I think ever since then, that's kind of how I see his music, which is really interesting. But it really got me to love Baroque music more and to, you know, approach it a little bit more easily than saying, it's just a bunch of notes. Because that's all I used yeah. to think about when I was younger. I didn't know any better. I mean, I just didn't really understand his music at the time. I just thought it was a bunch of notes. And it really just freaked me out. But I think when I have that visualization, kind of helped me out to not think it that way. And I saw things a little bit more horizontally than I did vertically, note by note by note. That's amazing that your feelings about Bach were like that. Because as a violinist, the Bach sonatas and partitas are one of the cornerstones of violin rep. Mm-hmm. Talk about Hilary Hahn. Her recordings of them, and it's basically what I aspire to be in my life. Ugh. But I've been playing them, you know, I've been playing different movements of them since high school. So it's amazing that you're like, oh, I didn't really appreciate it since gra- until grad school. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I played, I think I played the A major flute sonata and the E major flute sonata. No, E minor. E minor, not E major. I remember like listening to them and stuff, but I just, I, you know, I was like still trying to work on my own playing. And so I think I was more focused on that yeah. rather than the rep that I was playing. I liked things that were a little bit different. Like, I didn't play the Poulenc sonata like everyone else did. <laughs> I didn't play the Vidor mm-hmm. Suite. I was like, I'm going to play this other piece. <laughs> I'm going to play Look Out by Robert Dick. Like, it's a cool extra technique piece. And But, you know, now that I'm older, it's like, damn. I could have a playlist of his music doing busy work, and it'd be nice and calming for me. We get to the exercise freeing the eye from watching the notes, and this is what you were talking about with the Bach. It was player sing a Bach minuet and look at every note. Oh, yeah. Then play until familiar and try to read ahead. Then play from memory. Then play from memory again to sense what the fingers in your body look like. Then, quote, play like your Bach and you're watching dancers. Yes, that was the one that got me. to help to imagine phrasing. <laughs> this piece is out of the Suzuki book one for violin. Mm-hmm. I've heard it and I've seen it and I've done it way too many times with students to be able to do this exercise. I did it with one of my students for a recital, like one of our virtual recitals. I was like, oh, we're learning G major. <laughs> I think this was when we were learning like F sharp for the first time. And she was just like, how is this in music? And I was like, funny, you should ask. <laughs> and then we played this piece. But all I could think about was, 
Ta ta da 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 da. The takeaway of the exercise was that most musicians tend to feel more free and expressive when they move away from the sheet music. Yeah. My personal take on this was yes, I 100% agree, but I don't always think it's necessary to memorize the music to do this. I don't need to memorize the music, but what helps me to not, and I do this with my students, is just kind of taking small chunks. It can even just like range from like a measure or two to like two notes and just looking away from the music. And I do this because I just notice whenever I get caught up so much in the music, it's just stressful, and then I tend to get in the way of myself, and then I don't want to play mm-hmm. anymore. It's not merely like memorizing, it's more of like looking at the music and kind of seeing like, okay, what can you do without looking at the ink right in front of you? Can you still see it? Can yeah. you still hear it? Can you still feel it? That's what I kind of think about when I do this in my own practice and ask my students to do this as well. And usually when we do this exercise, whatever is tricking them up, they kind of notice where it's tricking them up and then they fix Mm -hmm. it. And I think it's been quite effective, but I'm not a memorizer at all. (laughs) Like, not my thing. I've had teachers in the past who require things to be memorized for performance. And I wouldn't say that just having someone memorize something doesn't make it a good performance, but I do think that there's some validity to not solely relying on the music as the sheet music is like a crutch yeah. for what you're doing, that you're so focused and honed in on it that you're not really aware of everything yeah. else. I think that's more of the takeaway. Performance goal two was using physical cues. Mental practice, which is something musicians do a lot, and practicing away from the instrument by going over, in my case, as a violinist, what fingerings and bowings to do and visualizing how to play it internally. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but this is something I, I do frequently. You know, whether it's I have a student and they need fast bowings and fingerings, or if I'm, you know, there have been times where I'm just sitting, you know, somewhere without my instrument and I'm looking at my music and I'm kind of practicing mentally. It's something that Helen always talked about doing in undergrad, so it's just kind of stuck with me. Yeah, I kind of do that with fingerings. I like to visualize when I'm playing something or if I'm sitting at the score, what am I doing with my fingers? Like, where are my fingers at in this in this moment? I think it helps me get away from my fear of, you're going to miss this note. I like feeling the music with my body sometimes when I listen. Sometimes I might move with the beat, do like big mm-hmm. beat kind of movement, to feel it a mm-hmm. lot better. And I think whenever I move a little bit with the music, it helps me feel a little bit like, okay, I can flow with this piece and I can sing well with this piece through my instrument. Brings us to yet another exercise, kinesthetic preparation. It was to use Bach or another piece. Imagine your body playing the piece, mm-hmm. then actually play the piece. Then if you were facing a difficulty of the piece, practice away from the instrument and then go back to the instrument and see if your body responds better with patterns based in kinesthetic memory. Again, I didn't do it for Bach, but I've, I've done this so much in my individual practice. And one thing that I'll do is sometimes if my students are having a problem, I'll ask them to put their instrument down and, and sing. Yeah. Okay, the reason for this is because because I need to know if it's something that just mentally isn't clicking or if it's a physiological difficulty with the instrument. And I find that very helpful and my students always hate it. They're always like, oh God, I have to sing. <laughs> I felt the same way too in class. And now I sing at my students all the time. Oh yeah, I tell them like, I promise it's just us two here. I'm not recording it. And, I, <laughs> and I'll even like turn away and I'm like, just, just sing. And I'll sing with them sometimes. I'll be like, I'll sing with you. I don't care. You can hear my scrabbly voice. 
I'm always like, you can just pick whatever. You can pick da or la or meow. It doesn't matter. Yeah. I just want to hear, just make it fun. <laughs> Many musicians find practice away from the instrument to be productive, which A plus. Mm-hmm. I would consider this performance goal number one. Personally. Exactly. If I rewrote this book. I always tell my students, especially with rhythms, if you can clap and count it, you can play it. I mm-hmm. usually say that in their rhythms too. I'm like, you know the rhythm. Now just play it. Performance goal three is the authentic sound. And it was how to play different pieces with stylistic accuracy. This more like showed me like understanding like Baroque music or... Yeah. yeah. This was like a very like blurby kind of one. Very short. Mm-hmm. He says a lot of this is learned from listening to recordings, which... Yeah. There's art- articulation differences in music, but sometimes there's not. For me at least with this, it's like taking in... The style from not just one recording, but multiple. Because I think my problem was in undergrad was I didn't do that. (laughs) I think this was before. I mean, Spotify was around, but I didn't have a smartphone in undergrad until like my last year. And even then, I didn't pay for Spotify Unlimited, where I could go deliver pizza with an unlimited playlist without Wi-Fi. So I would, like, listen to the same recording on my iPod, like, all the time. I remember when we were in undergrad, Spotify was around and smartphones were around, but it was more popular to look things up on YouTube. Yeah. Which had horrible audio quality compared to, like, Spotify. There were some that were good, and then there were some that were not. Yeah. I remember, also, I was cheap as crap, and so, like, I wouldn't go on iTunes and buy, like, albums all the time. I would go, like, on these, like websites. LimeWire. Well, oh god, that's like a throwback. (laughs) I don't know, I found a website that I don't remember what it was called, but I remember I tried getting onto it one time and it was like gone. And I was like, damn it. But if I looked up, I'm thinking right now the Chaminade Concertino (laughs) for flute. And I did this. I found like a free recording and I downloaded it and it was on my iPod like that. And I didn't get any viruses or anything, which was like a miracle. My dad would probably have killed me if I did. But I was just, like, really cheap. And then when I did have extra money or something, I would buy, like, an album on iTunes. Or I would... I started going to Second and Charles. <laughs> Second and Charles is the cat's meow. Yeah, exactly. And find old albums. If nobody knows what Second and Charles is, it's, like, a secondhand bookstore, DVDs, CDs. Vinyls. Yeah, it's amazing. And I think it just varies, like, where you live, what you get. And so... And there's a few locations here in Denver. I would find so many CDs for, like, 2 $3 and download them into my iPod and have a blast in my car. The one thing that I just didn't do was listen to multiple recordings of the one piece that I was learning because I just listened to one. I usually did the same thing. I listened to a few recordings, but I was a commuter to Kennesaw, mm-hmm. so I bought a lot of CDs and I'd have CDs of what we were playing in orchestra or what I was doing in lessons or what I was doing in quartet and I would play those in my car all the time so I'd have like a main recording yeah of an artist that I liked yeah I think nowadays though because we have such a saturation of content here I tell all my students especially students because I know they have smartphones and I'm like okay do you have Spotify yes okay cool 
So I want you to make a playlist, and I want you to find this <laughs> one piece, and I want you to make a playlist of different recordings that you find of this. Listen, you don't have to listen in, like, one sitting, but maybe one day listen to one recording, then the next day look up the piece, find another recording, add to that playlist. Because I don't know, I'm really jealous of children these days, because I'm like, ah, you don't... You just don't know the struggle. Performance goal number four is the music in your head. And I wrote, uh, Suzuki method. Because he talks about the Suzuki method and how it's basically, you have a teacher who's playing something and the student copies it. Mm. And how you need to listen to, hold up, wait, I can find it. 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 <laughs> he says, the Suzuki method teaches children to play music without reading it and uses recordings to give them an idea of the way music should sound. This is exactly my problem with Suzuki, is that the student just mindlessly copies and they don't learn anything. I mean, for me, whenever I was struggling the most, or if I was like not getting an articulation as clear or correct, like my teacher was trying to get me, she would just play like a line or a measure and try to like play that for me. Mm -hmm. And she's like, I want you to read along to your part. I want you to pay attention. I want you to listen. And so I would sit there and I'd be like, okay. <laughs> and then she wouldn't even give me time. She would just be like, she'd play the thing that she's like, go. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> and I would go. And it it was kind of like a copy game because she had me paying attention to what was actually going on in the music. I think it kind of helped me out a little bit. And what I try to do now, when I first sight read a piece, I definitely try not to like listen to the piece first if I don't know it off the top of my head. But I'll like kind of mm -hmm. dissect the piece a little bit. And then what I'll do is I'll actually, after I terrible sight read, <laughs> <laughs> and when I'm, like, studying it, then I'll actually listen to it and get a better idea. But back in the day when I was younger, 7.30, 8 o'clock lessons at night, and I'm tired, I would just be like, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> See, I think that's fine, though, because you're not using it as your only learning tool. My mm -hmm. problem with Suzuki, I'm sorry, I apologize in advance if we have any listeners who are proponents of Suzuki Method. It works especially well with little kids, and you don't give them any music, you don't teach them how to read music or anything, but you're like, hey... You know, the teacher plays something and then the student copies it. And that's literally how they learn everything. Yeah. I think that's problematic. You should be able to hear what music should sound like internally and match it with your physical plan. Yeah. What I kind of got from that, though, is... And I just tell this to my students when they're doing long tones. Hear the note in your head before you play it. And yeah. usually, like, 9 out of 10, that's like... Like that. And that's just something that yeah. I was taught. I think there's a lot of merit to being able to visualize mm -hmm. pitches mentally. Yeah. The exercise was hearing the music you play. It was Canton Races, and he was like, play it until you recognize the melody, and then play it again with a mental recording, and doing the same thing with another piece and seeing if it differs. I didn't actually do this exercise, but I have noticed that if I'm working on, I guess since Bach and Hilary Hong are on kind of something that I'm thinking about right now. If I'm playing a move in a Bach and then I listen to how Hillary phrases things, I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And I'll try to mimic it or understand why she does it. And it's also the same if you listen to anyone else doing any kind of Bach recording, it's always drastically different. Yeah. So I'll like listen to other recordings and be like, okay, why did they do this? Mm -hmm. And trying to pick and choose what I like. Hi everyone, basically, and trying this to mimic is the future Courtney and Catherine. Hello. Just wanted to let y'all know that this thick boy of a chapter ran heckin' long. We talk too much. 
Yeah, we really do. So we decided to split this into two episodes. Next week, we will be picking off on where we left off on Will. And we will be there. And we hope you will, too. See what I did there? Yeah. (laughs) We just said, hope you will be there. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we'll see you guys soon. Awesome. Bye.